17 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We are slowly working our way through this book of uh, the New Testament. Uh, Pastor Scott told me as he was doing some website statistics that this is our 44th venture into the book of Acts. So uh, here we are in Acts 17 this morning. I was talking with my children about our sermon and this sermon this morning and what we were going to do. And um, I expressed to them, uh, they said, how's it going to go? I said, well, this is not going to be very good. And they said, you say that all the time. And I said, well, I said, I just am not sure that I am capable of unfolding all of the wonders that are in this text. And Jenna said, well, why don't you just ask Pastor Scott to do it then? So, which was a real confidence booster, if I might say. Acts 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 16, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. So Acts 17, verse 16, follow along as I read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. <coughs> Excuse me. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or, and skill in the past. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I would like you to forget for a moment uh, what you know about C.S. Lewis, the great defender of the faith. I want you to forget for a minute about the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity and Screwtape and Aslan. Uh, I want you to think about what it might have been like to meet C.S. Lewis in 1925. He was 27 years old. He had just been appointed as a professor at Oxford University. Uh, he was a World War I vet, and he had been an atheist for at least a decade. He wasn't just any atheist, right? This is C.S. Lewis, the atheist. He is a brilliant atheist. His atheism, as you meet him in 1925, has two roots. Uh, on the one hand, uh, he doesn't find Christianity to be intellectually credible. In fact, when he was 17, he wrote a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves, and he said this, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them, and from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Now, Lewis' uh, atheism is also traced not just to his his intellect, but also to what he had experienced in his life. When C.S. Lewis was nine years old, his mother died, and it just shattered his world. He began at that moment to doubt the goodness of God, and then he went to World War I, and his denial of the goodness of God was confirmed in the trenches. Possibly couldn't believe. He could not possibly believe in the God of the Bible, especially when the book says that he is a good God. Now, if you met the 27-year-old C.S. Lewis, uh, I wonder how you would go about fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave us. The, the mission to represent Jesus all over the world. What would you say to someone like that? Uh, I wonder if you think you could do it, if you could adequately represent Christ in the face of this brilliant atheist. Uh, Jim Lehman is one of our outreach partners. He serves in Boston, and of course... He works with a college ministry in Boston, and Boston is home to some of the world's greatest universities. The most highly gifted students are there. They're um, studying government and medicine and business, and they're going to be at Harvard and MIT and Boston College. They're going to be the future Supreme Court justices and leaders in government and corporations all around the world. And Jim wants... <laughs> We were talking about the challenges that he has there representing Christ on a college campus in that environment. And, and Jim said, sometimes I just don't know. I'm just from Coryville. That's what he says. Just a simple boy from Coryville. Which is not a real compliment to Coryville, I don't think. But What happens when Christianity confronts the intellectual elite? We'll have a passage here before us that tells us, that helps us. With that, this is the story of Paul's ministry in Athens, and it is perhaps the most commented upon verses in all of the book of Acts. The ten verses that uh, compose uh, Paul's sermon or lecture here in verses 24 to 31 uh, are perhaps, or 22 to 31, uh, have been written about pages and pages and pages 
have been written about this speech. One of the challenges that we come as we approach this, and I want to think about this with you for a minute because it should help you as we think about how we read the Bible in general, is how, what, how should we approach these verses? On the one hand, we could, I could just explain what Paul said in this sermon. I could re-preach Paul's or re-deliver Paul's lecture, and it would be very valuable for us. That would be helpful. There's many, many good things in here. That's one approach. We could, we could approach it another way. Many people, many Bible scholars take Acts 17 and they compare it with what happens in Acts 14 and Acts 13. Well, what happens there? In Acts 13, we have Paul's most complete message in a synagogue. And when Jesus goes, excuse me, when Paul goes to a religious group of Jewish believers, what does he do? He preaches to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Then in Acts 14, he goes to a different audience. Here he preaches to uh, Gentiles, pagans who are not very educated. What does he do there? He talks about how God has given himself a witness of his existence by sending us the rain. And then, here he comes to Acts 17, he's speaking to the cream of the crop, the intellectual elite of the day. And what does he do? Well, he quotes their poets, he talks about God, and it would be valuable to compare those things as we think about our own strategies for how we communicate the gospel to people. That's another approach we could take when we come to Acts 17. What I think is uh, the best way for us to look at this passage today is to consider not just the sermon and not just Paul's methodology, but I want to think with you in the context of Acts. Why did Luke include this episode in his letter? Why did he introduce it the way he did? Why did he... Uh, what's Luke getting at? How does it relate to the rest of the stories that are nearby? Let's talk about it in context. This is one of the things that sometimes we miss when we read the Gospels. Oh, we, we study the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful sermon, right? In Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Fruitful to study and very carefully examine what the Sermon on the Mount is all about that Jesus delivered. But what does that sermon have to do with the rest of the book of Matthew and how the whole narrative flows uh, together of the, the gospel that Matthew is writing. Sometimes we miss that broad angle. Well, I want to take that broad angle from Acts 17 today. And I think, you'll be surprised by this, you'll shock you. I think the context of Acts 17 comes ultimately from Acts 1.8, which says what? <laughs> you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the whole context of the book of Acts. We're studying how did these early believers fulfill the mission that Jesus gave them. And we've looked at some of the ingredients. There's the power of the Holy Spirit. There's the necessity of forming local congregations. There is the uh, sufficiency of the Bible. And the emphasis here in this passage is what happens when the gospel meets the intellectual elite. And actually, we can even be more specific about that. Um, it tells us what hope we have of reaching them. See, the gospel, we've learned this, right, from Philippion. The gospel's for all kinds of people. It's for rich international businesswomen. It's for jail keepers. It's for teenage slaves. Here, the gospel is for thinkers and philosophers. That's what we're going to talk about today as we go through this passage. And I hear some of the objections that are coming to mind as you, you, you sit there. You, some of you 
You don't want to insult the people that are sitting around you, but, but you want to say, hey, Divinity, man, look around. We're in Manor Township. Like, this, is, this is a great place to live, but it is not the intellectual capital of the world. The chances of me meeting uh, an intellectually elite person at John Hers is not very high. Some of the rest of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, and um, I, I struggled to make, make it through high school. Um, you're talking about a people who had a lot more schooling than I have. Well, I want you to think about this passage. What you're going to discover, I think, is that Paul here is speaking to a Uh, intellectuals and philosophers because um, they are intellectual philosophers and what he says is important not because they're intellectual philosophers because they're human beings actually the text is broader than just their intellect in fact one of the the values of this passage is to show us that sometimes the people who think they're really really smart need to just remember that they're just normal human beings so maybe that'll be helpful in that regard Second thing to to keep in mind, though, as we go through this, is some of you just need to wait a little bit. What happens? Wait until your daughter brings home her boyfriend from college, and he's just on another plane. And and do you have any hope of of sharing the gospel with him? Well, or uh, what happens when you move the new neighbors moving in next door? And she's carrying her boxes, and you go over to meet her, and you discover that she's the new professor of philosophy at Millersville University or at F&M. Do you have any hope of of reaching her with the gospel? I want to show you from this text six reasons why we have hope when it comes to sharing the good news with the philosopher in your life. Um, Two of these reasons focus on Paul. They serve as a model for us. And then the other four have to do with realities that God has woven into the fabric of creation. So here's why we have hope in sharing the gospel. Number one, we have a new motive. We have a new motive. Verse 16 says that as Paul was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was, the text says, greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is an accurate characterization of Athens. In fact, the city... Uh, was proud of its reputation of, it as a, of the headquarters of the Greek gods. If you visit Greece today, which is not something I recommend, uh, take a lot of cash with you if you go, just and not euros. But anyway, um, so if you go to Greece today, you can go into a museum and you can see amazing sculptures. There'll be hundreds of beautiful, amazing sculptures. Uh, But those sculptures were not created for artistic merit alone. They were created as for worship, and the city was filled with these idols. And Paul was distressed by them. Now, why was Paul distressed? Well, as a faithful Jew, Paul would have learned growing up about how idolatry had just poisoned his people, and this would have upset him. But I think there's more going on here. The word translated greatly distressed is a unique word in the New Testament, but it's, all, it's found in several different places in the Greek Old Testament, and it describes God's reaction to idols. God himself is greatly distressed by idols. Why? His distress is related to the fact that the Bible tells us that he is a jealous God. That is, he is passionate about people's devotion to him. God knows that when you center your life and build your life on something other than him, what you're trusting in will not be able to sustain you. 
and help you and support you. He's passionate about people worshiping him, not idols. When they, they worship idols, they're giving glory. They're trusting in something that will dissatisfy them, that is not sufficient. They're, they're giving glory to something else that belongs to God. Paul's distressed that they're worshiping idols. He's zealous for Jesus' glory. They're building temples, they're making offerings, they're fulfilling vows when they should be worshiping Jesus. Now, you you can understand what this is like. This is not hard to understand at all. Let's imagine you're sitting around the dinner table uh, or it's time to eat. So you sit down and everybody comes to the table and your son... I'm stereotyping a lot today. That's okay. Your son, your teenage son, walks to the table and he sits down and he's got his hat on at the table. Well, there's, it's not one of the Ten Commandments. But uh, polite people don't wear their hats at the dinner table. So uh, your wife asks your son, please remove your hat. And he looks at, at her and says rather sullenly, why, is the food going to taste better or something if I don't have my hat on? Okay, what do you do at that moment in time? No, you're angry, right? So in sin, you want to say, no, but I bet it'll taste better if you can open your mouth, which you're not going to be able to do it because I'm going to smack it this side of Texas, right? You want to say that, but you're a Christian, so you don't. You say, don't you ever speak to your mother that way, ever, right? You are jealous to protect your wife. You are greatly distressed to see her so dishonored. And Paul is walking around Athens and he sees all these idols and he's just, oh, this glory, this worship belongs to Jesus Christ. This is a passage that illustrates here the statement that we sometimes apply to missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Paul is motivated here to speak of Jesus Christ because he is worthy of the worship of every single person on the planet and and he's jealous to see the Lord so honored. We need motives like this. You need a motive like this, especially when you face people that that you think are bigger than you are. People before whom you feel very small. You feel small because they're smarter than you or stronger than you or more talented or better educated or wealthier or better looking and their size, their bigness intimidates you. But if you know that the Jesus you represent is infinitely more glorious than all the glory they have, it frees you to speak. Jesus is worthy of the worship of every Nobel Prize laureate, every NBA all-star, every Emmy-winning actress, every Olympic gold medalist, every Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and every U.S. Open champion. It's the next time you meet one of them. I don't meet them very often. But if you're at John Hers and a Nobel Prize winner walks in, shake their hand, congratulate them. That trophy is amazing. That medal is beautiful. That's a huge accomplishment. It's, it's, I, I can't imagine the amount of work that went into winning that trophy, that, that medal. It's amazing. I don't want to diminish that trophy for, for a minute, but have you ever seen Jesus? Do you know that he's the wellspring of your soul and that he can be your greatest treasure? My seven-year-old son uh, has three medals 
He's very proud of them. He won them for his enthusiastic participation in the hokey pokey at the castle roller skating ring. He's, he's very proud of these medals. And if you compare a Nobel Prize, my son's three medals, and Jesus' glory together, that Nobel is a lot more like those roller skating rig medals than Jesus' glory, isn't it? Oh, have you seen him? Have, have you, you, you should worship him this new motive. I wonder if the Jesus that you worship is high enough in your estimation that when he is so dishonored, you are distressed. That if you were to walk down the street and see a picture of 5,000 men kneeling to Mecca, it would distress you because Jesus is worthy of that glory. Well, that's the new motive. Now, second here, related to the Apostle Paul, we have an old method, an old method. Verse 17. So what does Paul do? In response to the idolatry, he does exactly what he has always done. He reasoned in the synagogue. He goes to a synagogue. He finds faithful Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and he has the intention of telling them about Jesus the Messiah. Why does he do that? Because he's planting a church. He does what he always does. Because Paul knows that a local congregation of believers is God's plan to reach people and to transform, to overturn a culture. I suppose what's more important here than observing is what Paul did not do. Paul did not start an anti-idolatry campaign. He didn't start, uh, he, he didn't protest the idols. He didn't get a placard and go downtown with a sign that says God hates idols. He didn't start an anti-idolatry letter writing campaign. He planted a church. God's plan A. Um, we need, we desperately need people who work in Harrisburg and Washington, D.C. and advocate for um, uh, uh, the, the values that the scripture teaches us. We, we desperately need those people. The ones who do that best are, though, are the ones that do that with their eye on God's plan A. What is the best way to end abortion in America? Plant churches. What's, the best, what's God's plan for overturning poverty in Africa? Churches that are sharing the gospel and discipling people. How are we going to win the drug war? Do you know that heroin is just exploding? In Lancaster County in the United States, heroin use is skyrocketing. Do you know how we're going to win the drug war? Vibrant local congregations. What's the best way to eliminate racism? Plant churches. How are we going to reform marriage and push back against the sexual confusion? Healthy churches that teach the Bible and share the gospel. This is God's plan A. It's an old method, and it's what Paul does. Now, let's trace how the story develops here, what happens as this move up, moves on. Paul does something else, something he's never done before, at least according to the text, the book of Acts that we have recorded. He also, in addition to planning his church with his old strategy, he begins, verse 17, to go to the marketplace day by day, and reasoning with them, the ones who happen to be there. Um, 
he goes to this marketplace and begins speaking. It seems, what's interesting here is the text, Luke kind of represents Paul a little bit like Socrates. This is what Socrates did in the city of Athens. He went to the marketplace to speak. Luke is kind of casting Paul as, as Socrates, just a little bit here. Uh, Luke is, uh, and then in verse 18, he meets a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, if we had the time, we could talk about what these philosophers believe. These are two of the leading philosophies in co- to try to live in the world and explain the world in contrast to uh, the theism of the Bible. Um, we could spend some time talking about what they believed. We're not going to. Some scholars take what they believe, the Epicureans and Stoics, and compare it later with what Paul's going to say in the Oropagus, and they, they, they can show you how Paul actually answers some of the concerns that the Epicureans and Stoics have. It's, it's a fascinating study. We'll, we'll not do that today. Uh, these philosophers are there, and they have questions, these influential intellectuals. Paul is not really complimentary to them. Um, they're snobbish and they're slow. We know they're snobbish because they call him in verse 18, what is this babbler trying to say? That word babbler literally is translated seed picker, like a bird. Paul, they say, is a third-rate philosopher who picks up a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit. He doesn't have any original ideas. He doesn't have a coherent idea. He's got a little bit from everywhere, and he's put it together into his own philosophy. They're, they're snobbish. Then um, they, they say he's, he, he's, they're a little slow, too. What's he saying? Well, I don't know. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. Well, these philosophers are not too quick. I don't know, understand what Paul's talking about. So then verse 19 says they take him and they bring him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is, is a hill in Athens. It also is the name and location of where the ruling council of Athens meets. And I'm not sure, I don't know exactly what's going on here. Is Paul being brought before them for trial? Maybe. Like he on trial for what he's teaching? Or are they bringing him here for an official evaluation of his teaching because they want to um, see if Paul should be allowed to teach what he's teaching in Athens? Maybe. Or maybe... um, they're just curious, and they're inviting him to their council meeting. Would you come and tell us? Verse 21 might seem to indicate that, um, and this is not a compliment to them either, is it? Look at verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And you want to say, who's the seed picker now? Right? Well, then we get here in verse 22 to Paul's speech. And here are four more reasons why we have hope of reaching intellectuals and philosophers and everyone else. Here's reason number uh, three. Every life has open doors for spiritual truth. Every life has open doors for spiritual truth. Now, how does Paul start with this message? Verse 22. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Religious is kind of, is that a compliment or not? Maybe it's superstitious. Mm. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. 
We have ancient records of idols like this. We've actually uncovered idols like this. Monuments that say to an unknown God. Now, how did they get there? Well, two ideas. Some people think that there must have been some guy in Athens um, who looked around at all the idols and all the statues and thought, well, we've got 7,000 of them, but maybe we're missing one of the gods. Let's build another one to a god that we don't know who, exi- who he is so that we can worship him and we don't leave out the unknown god or her. We don't leave out the unknown god or goddess. Maybe. That's where it came from. Or <coughs> it could have been built by some family who had a particular blessing that came to them, and they don't know which of the gods gave it to them. Who was it? Who gave us this God? Well, we don't know, but we'll build this altar the, to the God who blessed us. And uh, it's the unknown God, um, but we want to honor this unknown God who, who is blessing us. Maybe. Notice what Paul does here. This would not be difficult to do in the United States, would it? Not at all. People of America, I see that you are very religious. In fact, on your money, it says, in God we trust. And I hear your politicians all the time, every speech, they say, God bless America. And you sing this song with the same music, God bless America. Well, who, who is the God that you want to bless you? Who is the God that you are trusting in? I will tell you about the God who is. It wouldn't be hard to do, would it? Well, uh, is, this, is this transferable? That's what Paul did he opened this door of their religiosity and pushed through. Is, there, is, it, is it transferable? I think that every life has open doors for spiritual truth. It's good to remember that because it's not always obvious that every life has open doors to spiritual truth, especially people whose lives seem to be so successful, so happy, so intelligent, or people who are so gifted. But, you know, it fits in with our own theology of sin and brokenness, doesn't it? It tells us that every life has opened doors to spiritual truth. We believe that that every human being, the natural condition of every human being, is alienation from God. This is a fruit of our rebellion against him. And being alienated from the creator means that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Romans 3.23, we've fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has because of our sin. It's as if the whole universe has been shaken in a massive earthquake and things are out of place. You can cover it. You can cover the fact that things are out of place. We're very good at covering up the fact that things are out of place. We have Facebook to help us cover that things are out of place in our lives. And and it's easy if you have some special skill, some talent, some intellect, some some level of success, covering over the realities of your life, covering over that, that your, your life and making it look so perfect. But everyone, everyone's life has some unfulfilled desire, some area of shame, even if they think shame is a social construct, uh, some area of confusion or insecurity. No one is as put together as they want you to think. I had a conversation not too long ago with a man whose um, some of his children have been involved in uh, the recovery movement in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I've been to some of their, their meetings, and he said, it's astounding to me when I sit in their meetings how honest the people are with one another. You wouldn't believe the things they say to each other about themselves. 
see, those people that are there, they know that the only way they're going to make it is through this honesty, this level of truthfulness about themselves, even when the truth is ugly. We believe that every life has ugly truth. Every elder in this church, every member of your growth group, we believe that the truth about each other is sometimes very ugly, and that is often the door to spiritual truth. Now, fourth on our list here, our hope for sharing the gospel with intellects and intellectuals and philosophers. Everyone is dependent on God whether they know it or not. Everyone is dependent on God whether they know it or not. Now, in verses 24 and 25, Paul corrects their ignorance. And look what he says about what is not true about God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. Right? We sang that a few minutes ago. It's a poetic rendition of this verse. Everyone is dependent upon God whether they realize it or not. This is the confusion that's related to their idolatry. Idolatry always diminishes God. In fact, John Stott uses uh, four verbs to describe what idolatry does. It's great. Idolatry localizes God. Idolatry domesticates God. Idolatry alienates God. And idolatry dethrones God. That is, it localizes him. It limits him to one place. It domesticates God. It makes him needy. Idolatry alienates God. It pushes him uh, far away, makes him distant or uninvolved. That's actually the God of the Epicureans. Or it dethrones God. It minimizes his power and authority. No human being is as independent from God as, as much as he or she might like. This is another product of our rebellion against God. We want to be independent, but no one is as independent as they think. No one is as disconnected as they might want. Our dependence on him is a reality that you cannot deny. In every Wiley E. Coyote cartoon I have ever seen, there's, a, there's always the same scenario. Wiley Coyote is chasing the roadrunner, right, through the, the hills of, of the southwest United States. And they're running and running and running and running. And at some point in time, Wiley Coyote, he doesn't realize it, runs off the cliff and is there in midair. Now, why is it, why is it Wiley Coyote, uh, he will hang there until he looks into the screen with this look of fear and he'll look down and then he'll look back up and he'll hold a little sign that will say, help me. And then, and only then, does he fall to the ground. There is nowhere on earth that that's the way gravity works, right? Um, gravity is, is true whether you are aware of it or not. You might deny gravity. You might not like deny gravity. You might not ever think about gravity at all. But when you trip, you're still going down. Everyone is dependent upon God whether they know it or not. And that's the God as a follower of Jesus Christ that you represent. Now, number five, everyone is invited by God to seek him. Everyone is invited by God to seek him. Well, there's a lot of truths in verses 26 through 28. Oh, my goodness. Look what it says. Uh, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit 
the whole earth. Um, this is a verse, right, that should end racial superiority at all, uh, completely. doesn't matter what color another human being is. We all came from the same source. These snobbish Greek philosophers, they needed to know this. They needed to remember this. And the, the text says, God's sovereign rule. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And here's his sovereignty. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is an astounding verse. God has determined the geographic area and the length of the dominance of the Roman Empire and the British Empire and the Incas and the Aztecs and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And when the United States crumbles, it will be an expression of the sovereign hand of God. It's an astounding verse. But his rule is purposeful. There's a reason behind it. Verse 27 God did this, why? Why did he do this? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Um, from Look here, God's providential rule of the world from a, from a global perspective, it's, it's revelatory. It's part of the revelation of, of himself. God reveals himself in nature. There's not a plan or power below, but makes thy glories known. God reveals himself in nature. God reveals himself in his word. And God reveals himself through geopolitics. God's providential working among the nations. It's a prompt for people to seek him. Now, how does this work? How does this work? How's God's working among the nations revelatory? History is supposed to tell us that there is something more, that there is someone more, that there is something greater than what human beings can create and do and accomplish. Nations come and go over and over. Empires rise and fall. There are realities in the universe that exceed your ability to know and control and history is an invitation to seek that reality. Now, that's maybe how, one way in how that works. Does it actually work? Well, here's one way to think about it. Um, Tim Keller just wrote a, a great new book on prayer. It's got a snappy title. It's called Prayer. And he writes about how universal prayer is. Prayer is a common human phenomenon. Listen to what he said. Even deliberately non-religious people pray at times. Studies have shown that in secularized countries, prayer continues to be practiced not only by those who have no religious preference, but even by many of those who do not believe in God. One 2004 study found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted that they prayed sometimes, and another found that 17% of non-believers in God pray regularly. Who are they speaking to? The frequency of prayer increases with age, even among those who do not return to church or identify with any institutional faith. Italian scholar Giuseppe Giordan summarized, In virtually all studies of the sociology of religious behavior, it is clearly apparent that a very high percentage of people declare they pray every day, and many say even many times a day. 
Does this mean that everyone prays? No, it does not. Many atheists are rightly offended by the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. There are many people who do not pray even in times of extreme danger. Still, though prayer is not literally a universal phenomenon, it is a global one inhabiting all cultures and involving the overwhelming majority of people at some point in their lives. Efforts to find cultures, even very remote and isolated ones, without some form of religion and prayer have failed. There has always been some form of attempt to communicate between human and divine realms. There seems to be a human instinct for prayer. Swiss theologian Karl Barth calls it our incurable God-sickness. So does this work here, God's plan? Well, if we're considering that people pray everywhere, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Why do people pray? Because nations rise and nations fall. Everyone is invited by God to seek him. And that super smart person in your life is on a planet where the God who rules pulls her mind, his heart, toward himself. But there's a problem, actually, in this. There's a problem that Paul points out. This seeking that he's talking about that, that uh, is working in here is not very refined seeking. It's groping. Does your text say groping? Some of yours might. God did this so that he will seek him and perhaps reach out for him, maybe grope for him, like, like trying to play hide-and-seek in the dark, pitch black, right, trying to find him. It's, it's an imperfect-looking Um, he's close because he's our creator, and Paul quotes some Greek poets here. But even this this grove thing for God, it's not sufficient. It results in images and statues, verse 29. These images and statues, they can't be the way. And the the way that, that you have been looking for God, they're ignorant things. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. God's providential rule over history invites us to seek him but even when we do it's not very successful so we need something more and here's reason number six for hope maybe it's more of a motivational warning everyone is accountable to god and his son everyone is accountable to god and his son verse 30 in the past god overlooked such ignorance that's an interesting phrase what does it mean well, I think Paul here is, we, we look at other places in the Bible to find the answer. Look back, I wrote it down in your sheet, I think, Acts fourteen sixteen. It says, Paul's preaching, in the past he let all nations go their own way. Or, here's another, another verse, don't, don't get lost in the details, Romans three twenty five. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to rece- be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In the past, God had let the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, what does that mean? There was a time before Jesus came when God showed extra patience, extra forbearance, with the nations that did not have all of the advantages that the nation of Israel had. There were nations surrounding Israel that did not have the law. They did not have the covenant. They didn't have the tabernacle. And God showed them extra patience, extra forbearance. 
He still judged them on the basis of, of common moral decency, but there was this level of toleration, this patient forbearance that God had with those nations. But now that, t- that time has come to an end. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now why? Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There is an appointed day of judgment coming. As surely in the providence of God, the United States was founded on July 4th, 1776, and the Soviet Union collapsed on December 26th, 1991. There is coming a day. It's on God's calendar. It is a day of judgment, and everyone is accountable to God. And there is already an appointed judge. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, notice how we know that Jesus is the judge. How do we know Jesus is the judge? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's interesting here, the resurrection. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. I'm not sure we think about this very much as one of the fruits of the resurrection, but when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a public declaration by God that Jesus is the duly appointed judge, that the keys of death and hell have been given to Jesus, and the resurrection is this screaming sign that he has the authority, that he is at the center of history, that he is the one that God has entrusted all judgment to. Now, this is where Paul's speech ends. Was he interrupted by laughter or was this the end? We don't know, but look what happens in verse 32. When, he heard about the resurre- when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Huh. The resurrection is a central miracle of Christianity. Everything rests on it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. The Bible's not true. The gospel's a lie. We're fools. We have no hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead... And, and people have been scoffing at the resurrection from the dead since the beginning. This is nothing new that people doubt the resurrection. And yet some people still believe here. Dionysius, Damaris, a number of others. There's always going to be opponents and there's always going to be people who respond. Fifteen years after he wrote his friend uh, Arthur Greaves about how Christianity makes no philosophical sense, It's interesting what C.S. Lewis wrote. Listen to him. He said, Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call for real things. I'm a little disappointed that C.S. Lewis said for real. But Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call for real things. Namely, the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. There is a real God who has really entered history to provide a real rescue for his people. It's for real. And it's inescapable. And we have no fear about the sufficiency of this message for all sorts of people. Let's pray, shall we? Father God in heaven, we come before you and we do so with great confidence that your word 
and your testimony about your son is for real. Uh, How satisfying it is for us to contemplate this. And as we think about Paul's testimony before the Areopagus, Lord, we can think of people in our lives who they intimidate us because of their intelligence or their quick-wittedness or their cynicism and sarcasm. And sometimes when, when we speak to them about Christ, we feel stupid and inadequate and intimidated. Lord, I thank you for this reminder from the Apostle Paul that there are chinks in that smart armor. There are things about those men and women that are true that they may not acknowledge, but you're, you're the sovereign over them, and, and there they are, open doors and dependencies and questions and accountability. Lord, I, I pray that you would use this testimony, this, this story that Paul gave for its intended purposes in our lives, that we would think with hope about these men and women who challenge and confront and sometimes intimidate us as we think about representing Jesus to them. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the judge, and we look forward to that day that you're coming back Yet we even do so with a sense of fear because of those we love who are not yet your followers. So give us courage and give us opportunities to represent Jesus well. Be big in our lives when we feel very small before other people. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.